The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and uh, what is that song that we're listening to? That is Billie Holiday, who I don't think I've ever played on the show before. I'm not sure why. And she's doing A Sailboat in the Moonlight, which is just this adorable little song, which I'm using because not only is it just good and it's Billie Holiday, but because it's about being out on the ocean in a boat. And that is going to relate to our theme for today. I want to do a language family show. And I can't take you through every language family on Lexicon Valley, but some of them should be featured, especially if they are my favorite families. We've talked a lot about Indo-European. I did you a Semitic show. That's technically a subfamily, but whatever. Today, I want to do Austronesian. Austronesian is one of my favorite groups, and it really is worthy of a whole show because you can learn so much about language and linguistics just from Austronesian. Austronesian is languages spoken starting in Southeast Asia. That includes the Philippines and Indonesia. And then you move eastward and all those islands like Borneo and Sulawesi and Java and Timor and Bali, that's Austronesian land. And then it kind of skippy, skippy, skips over New Guinea, the island of New Guinea. And on both edges, north and south, you've got some of these Austronesian languages. You can almost see like a person or maybe two people skipping along. Then you get way out into the South Seas and Austronesian just keeps on going. And that was the pathway of the people. And it finally ends way out on Easter Island. And you go much further and you're in South America. So Austronesian is an enormous family, much larger than, say, Indo-European. Austronesian is about a thousand languages. So it's a big group and there's just so much there. You can learn so much about what it is to be a language with Austronesian. But just the stretch and the spread of this group, that languages so far apart from one another could be related, is astonishing in itself. And so, for example, in Malay, the word for I, as in what you see out of, is mata. Okay, well, in itself, that's not very interesting. But then in Tagalog, which always looks on the page like it's Tagalog, but no, it's Tagalog, spoken in the Philippines. What's the word for I? Well, it's mata. And then in New Guinea, there's a language spoken along the coast that you know nobody's ever heard of beyond there called Motu. And one thing about Motu is that the word for I is mata. Then you go out into the South Seas and so, and we're in Fiji. And the word for I is, well, you can guess. And then you go a little further out, you're in Samoa. And the word for I is still mata. That's because all these languages started as one. Malay for Laos, kutu. Tagalog for Laos, kuto. Different, but you can tell. Motu, instead of kutu or kuto, it's utu. So no initial consonant, but still, it's clearly the same word. Fijian, kutu. Samoan, utu, with the u. That glottal stop, the difference between saying uh-oh and oh, uh, uh, 
glottal stop is a sound, just like p, t, k, uh. The uh is just a p, t, or k further back. So, utu, Laos in Samoan. So, you can do that on and on. Of course, the languages aren't always that similar. These are words that are carefully picked, but still, that there are a whole huge bunch of words that correspond like that is how you know that languages that seem disparate actually are a family. In general, with languages of a family, they're going to be structural things that they have in common in addition to having the same sorts of word shapes. Now, with Austronesian, you're dealing with such a big group of languages that have been separated for a certain amount of time so that there's only so much that you can say constitutes an Austronesian stamp. But there are certain things, and one of them is how Austronesian languages handle what linguists for some reason call reduplication. It should just be called duplication. But it's called reduplication as if you're somehow doing it not twice, but four times or something. But what I mean by that is what happens when you repeat a word. So, for example, in English, we'll say something like, well, you know, before you got into the subway, did you have a kiss or was it a kiss kiss? And what we mean by that is, was it a real kiss? So there's this emphasis or something like that. Now, that is for emphasis, but then you can use reduplication for other things. And it doesn't always have to be exactly repeating the word. It can be distorting the word when you say it a second time. And so, for example, we might say something like tozy wozies, or you might hug a cat and call it, oh, pussy wussy or something like that. So you don't think about this as a rule of English, but taking that W and putting it on the second one. That's another kind of reduplication. And in this case, it's when we're being affectionate towards something. Reduplication comes not only in many forms in terms of whether it's the whole word or distorting the word in some way, but also many flavors in terms of what you can do with it. And Austronesian gives you a lot of experience with that. And so, for example, Tagalog, that language that's the main one of the Philippines, to buy, as in to purchase, is bili. Okay. Well, to say that you will buy something is bibili. So you take that first syllable of bili, the b, and you repeat it. That's another kind of reduplication. Instead of total reduplication, as we call it, which would be bili bili, we use partial reduplication and we say bibili. So that's the way, one way you can do future in Tagalog. We would never think of repeating a verb to put it in the future. Kiss, kiss doesn't mean tomorrow's kiss. But in Tagalog, it's something like that. There's a language called tau, where sweep is fapu. Broom is fafapu. So to create an instrument, create something that does something that's indicated by a verb, you have partial reduplication. Sweep, fapu. A broom is a fafapu. That's the sort of thing that happens. You get this reduplication. It's used in lots of interesting ways, which gets me thinking of this little song, which I think most of you will like. This is called Umbrella Man. Here it goes. One, a two, a three, a four. like rain let it pit patter let it pit patter don't you mind the rain he'll mend your umbrellas then go on his
way Singing toot 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 Who? No, it wasn't Dinah Washington. That was Mae Barnes. She was another black woman of a certain age by 1958 when that recording was made. And she's one of those people. She was absolutely wonderful. She introduced the Charleston on the Broadway stage in a show called Runnin' Wild. But most of her career was live, so you had to be there. She only recorded so much. You don't see much of her on film. So once she was gone, she was gone. But that was Mae Barnes. I recommend looking her up. This album in particular is delightful. In any case, that's reduplication in song, sort of, and really I just wanted to play that. But another thing about Austronesian is that sounds are relatively user-friendly in Austronesian. Austronesian tends not to have weird vowels that only differ so much from one another, like in Mandarin or strange languages like, for example, English. You don't usually have bristling batteries of ugly consonants. You don't have clicks or anything like that. You have kind of pretty sounds. They tend to be languages where if they're going to be a challenge to learn, making the sounds is not going to be the challenge, which means that the names of Austronesian languages tend to be just gorgeous. Roviana. Doesn't that sound like that cousin who you've always found attractive, but she's your cousin and so you can't have her? Roviana. That's who that is. Nguna. Tangoin. Rapa Nui. Don't you want to eat that? Doesn't that sound like something that would become popular among upper middle class people to eat once kale stops being so important? Rapa Nui. That's actually the language of Easter Island. So Easter Island isn't only those weird sculptures. Rapa Nui is the language. Kiribati. And you know what that is? Gilbert. The Gilbert Islands pronounced in Austronesian. Kiribati. It's like Gilbert, Kiribati, so Kiribati. You, you want that, Kiribati. It's probably purple. It probably tastes like grape soda. Malakula, which sounds like a drink. You know, the cosmopolitan is out. We're about to run out of mezcal in the world. And then people need to start drinking malakulas. Austronesian languages also have a lot of glottal stops. So that's a little less smooth, a little less of the roviana. But it also just makes them fun. And so, for example, toabaita is one language. Not toabaita, toabaita. That's the sort of thing that you get with Austronesian. And then also the verb is often first. Not always, but in Austronesian languages, often the verb is at the beginning of the sentence. And so kicks the boy the ball. Not the boy kicks the ball, but kicks the boy the ball. There's some languages like that. A lot of them are Austronesian. So that's what these languages are like. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You start to think when you see all these languages spread across such a wide territory, and here is how widely they're spread. Here's sidebar. I talked about how it starts with Malay and then I went east. But, you know, if you go all the way across the Indian Ocean to Madagascar, and that's off the southeast coast of Africa, the language spoken in Madagascar is called Malagasy. 
And you'd think that it was an African language because it's Africa. But no, Malagasy is an Austronesian language. People in what would have been small boats truly must have suffered. And they crossed that ocean. The experts differ on exactly when. One estimate is that it happened in about 300 AD. And they settled in Madagascar. And it probably would have been impossible to go back. And so today, for example, the word for I is mata in Malay and so many other languages. The word for I in Malagasy is maso. It's a slightly more distant relative, but still you've got all sorts of parallels that are just too close. And it's quite incontestable that Malagasy is an Austronesian language. So you've got this incredibly widespread, where did it all start? Like, did it all start in Madagascar? Where does a group like this begin? And it's interesting. It did not begin in, for example, Java. It did not begin in Samoa. Austronesian starts out, and we know this both from linguistic evidence as well as archaeological and even genetic evidence at this point. Austronesian begins on Taiwan, of all places. Just little Taiwan is where it started. And one way we know this is that Austronesian languages are least alike on Taiwan. And what I mean by that is that where in a family you find the most diversity is often where it began, because that means that languages have been sitting there for the longest time, becoming different from one another, because languages are always changing. They have to become different from one another, just like clouds have to move. If that's been going on for a very, very long time, then you get major differences. And that means that the place where you get the most difference is probably where it all started. It's just like genes. And so it's been found not too long ago, that humans are most genetically diverse among the people who speak click languages, the people who live in Southern Africa and are still often living hunter-gatherer lives. Very interesting group. And it's among those people that human genes are most diverse. And that's one of various reasons to suppose that they might be descendants of the very first people. Much less genetic diversity once you move from those particular people. Same thing with languages. And so, Austronesian is represented by about 25 languages on Taiwan that are clearly Austronesian, but very, very different from one another, which means that they have been sitting there for the very longest time. That means that Austronesian would have started there. And according to most estimates, that would have been around 6,000 years ago. And then the spread starts from Taiwan. There's evidence that really the story all really began on the coast of Asia across, but that need not concern us. Basically, Austronesian starts in terms of what we can see now in Taiwan about 6,000 years ago. And then people start moving in the way that they tend to. Now, where would they have gone? Well, it seems that the Philippines was next. And the way that we know that is that among all the Austronesian languages, there are certain words that you can find in common in a great many of them, but not in Taiwan. And so that means that these words would have started after these people left Taiwan. One set of those words is the words for taro and breadfruit and banana and coconut. They start in the Philippines and then you find them everywhere else, but not in Taiwan. So that's one way that you can know that there was a pathway from Taiwan 
where the languages are clearly Austronesian but lack certain things that all the other Austronesian languages have, that means we can do a pathway. And the Philippines is home to languages like Tagalog. There are several dozen languages that are very much like Tagalog that most of us don't hear much about, like Hiligaynon and Cebuano and many others. And the fun thing about them to me has always been that they have what are called infixes, a lot of infixing. And so we do prefixes and suffixes in our Indo-European languages. But you can also infix, meaning that you just you know shove it in. And so, for example, the word for walk is lakad. Now, one way that you want to put lakad into the past is you use um. Now, is it lakadum? Do you put it at the end? That's what we would think of from English. No, you put it in the middle. And so one way to say roughly walked is to say not lakadum, but lumakad. It's l-um-akad. You put it in. It's just like, frankly, I've, I've talked about the insertion of another kind of word when you talk about, for example, Philadelphia. Do you know that people also used to do this, and maybe they still do, with goddamn I had never heard it, but apparently Pulitzer, Joseph Pulitzer, the famous publisher, was rather profane, and apparently he used to say things like, into goddamn pendant. So not into fucking pendant, but into goddamn pendant. So you can insert all sorts of things. And with Philippines languages, it tends to be little bits like this um. So it shows you that languages are not all about prefixes and suffixes. They're also about infixes and, and hiccups and things. Now, after that, as you move down, if you have a sense of the map in your head, then you get to languages that the specialists call, in a kind of a vague way, Indonesian-type languages. And that seems to be where people went next. Indonesian is the standardized 20th century form of a language that you might more properly call Malay. Malay slash Indonesian is something I've discussed on this show before as what would be an ideal universal language, especially the way it's really spoken, where it really is extremely user-friendly and not bothering you with long lists of endings, not having tone. It's the easiest language in the world that I know of in terms of allowing you to make yourself understood without sounding like a complete idiot after just you know a couple days of study. Now, the standardized language is a little tougher than that, but actually, Indonesian is really interesting in that if you're thinking about learning another language for some reason, Indonesian is going to be really nice to you because you don't have any long lists of endings, no ablo, ablas, abla, ablamos, none of that. And then you also don't have tones. If you really think about languages around the world and how they challenge you, it's very rare that a language doesn't either throw at you all those conjugational endings, etc., or tones. When a language doesn't bother you with either one of those things, that is a language that likes you, and that is Indonesian. There are things about Indonesian that are challenging, but wow, no amo, amas, amat, and no ma, 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 none of that. That's a language that likes you. And so that's how Malay slash Indonesian works. And then, of course, it has lots of friends. And Malay Indonesian is easy like that because it's been learned by adults and used as a second language for a very long time. The other languages get more complicated than that. But still, there's a template. And so that seems to be the next place that these Austronesian speakers went. And then they move east. And once they get east, we have to think about the family in a slightly more fine-grained way. So Austronesian is our big family. Austronesian has four subfamilies. Three of them 
are spoken in Taiwan. That means that all the other Austronesian languages, once you get off that parking lot sized little island, all the other Austronesian languages, the vast, vast majority are all one subfamily. So you've got these three subfamilies spoken on Taiwan. I'm not even going to bother to name them. Then you have this one other subfamily, which is called not Austronesian, but Malayo-Polynesian, which is beginning to have a kind of a colonial slash old brown dictionary feel to it, that word, that Malayo-Polynesian, but that's what it's called. And Malayo-Polynesian divides into three things. Western Malayo-Polynesian is Tagalog and its friends, Indonesian and its friends. Central Malayo-Polynesian, believe it or not, I've already covered on this show because that's the group that, for example, the languages of Flores belong to, those mysteriously unfussy languages of Flores where you just wish that the Hobbit people had something to do with it. But that's a different story that I've already told. Then you have Eastern Malayo-Polynesian, and roughly that group is called Oceanic. And so we move to this region of the island of New Guinea on the outskirts of it, and then out into the South Seas. So that's how Austronesian works in terms of lots of family members. And, you know, there are songs that mention lots of family members. You know, Cole Porter is a little under-recorded, especially in the middle of his career. This is his hit show, Something for the Boys, from 1943. Big hit with Ethel Merman. It was not recorded as a cast album. It's recently been reconstructed, and it's very interesting to hear what a Cole Porter show sounded like during World War II, down to the original arrangements, especially a plot song like this one from the beginning, where a lawyer is coming and telling the main characters that they've fallen into some inheritance money. And so this is announcement of inheritance from something for the boys. This is effectively newly recorded just for this year. And this, for those of you who liked Frasier, is the guy who played Gil Chesterton. He actually is a musical theater person. This is him singing announcement of inheritance. And it's got lots of stuff about family in it, which of course makes it necessary to play this song in a show about Austronesian. Here we go. Mr. Keter Hart, please get me straight. I'm the answer to all your prayers. I'm the lawyer, the attorney, and the advocate for the court of missing heirs. I have hunted for you everywhere as the head of our legal branch. For we suddenly discover you're the partial heir to a tip-top Texas ranch. So you're two distant cousins and you now own... But I haven't any cousins. Though for you they're unknown, still the facts I state are strictly true. For our expert tracers find the due to the death of your long-lost Uncle Lou. Your two distant cousins, not to mention you, both rightfully and lawfully a fallen heir to 4,000 acres in Texas. Once we get out into Oceanic, you start getting some interesting features. So, for example, pronouns. We've got, you know, I, you. Then we get picky in the third person singular. We've got our he, she, it. Then we've got we. Then we've got you. And we don't make a difference between singular and plural. And if anybody tries, they're smacked in the face. Don't say you all. Don't say yous, you, you ruffian. And so we just leave it there. And then there's they. That is very cream of wheat in terms of how pronouns go in a lot of languages. And in oceanic languages, for example, very often, for one thing, we 
is a whole lot of things. So we is either me and you or me and them. There'll be two different words for that. And that's an Austronesian feature in general. The idea that you would just have one is rather alien. But then, especially out in oceanic world, you get lots of languages where you also have a word for me and you too, specifically, or me and those two. So me and you, me and that person, me and you two, me and those two people, or me and all of them, or all of us bunch. So you'll have these six different words, all these different kinds of weeness, very natural to them. Same thing with you. And so there's you two, but then there's also you three, and then there's you bunch, if it's a whole bunch of people. And those are different words. Then with they, it's those two, or those three, or that big old bunch of people. So you've got all these different pronouns that divide things up much more finely than we're used to. It really makes those languages fun if you can spend a lonely, dateless afternoon teaching yourself to halfway speak one only for that afternoon because it's 1991 and you're dateless. Now, that, of course, happens to all of us. But the pronouns is very common. Or possession is fun in oceanic languages. It's actually one of the things that makes them hardest to really learn, but these are the sorts of things that make languages fun. So, Maori, we're in New Zealand. Maori is the oceanic language that is spoken in New Zealand. My grandparent, toku tupuna. So, tupuna is grandparent. Toku is my. Toku tupuna, my grandparent. Okay. Grandchild is not tupuna, it's mokopuna. So if my grandparent is toku tupuna and grandchild is mokopuna, then my grandchild presumably should be toku mokopuna. No, smacked in the back of the head. I don't know if anybody really does that, but it's not the way you say it. You don't say toku mokopuna, you say taku mokopuna. Why? Well, we think, you know, well, you know, it's my grandparent, my grandchild, my pineapple, my Walkman, whatever. No, many languages make differences about possession in terms of what way you possess something. Is it your mother or is it your stapler? And there are all sorts of ways that you can divide it up. And in oceanic languages, often it's about control, or at least that's what you're told. And so the idea is that you can control a grandchild. And so that's one possessive class, taku mokopuna, whereas you don't control your grandparent in the same way, at least not usually. And so toku tupuna. So you're going to have a different possessive form depending on whether you can control it. So we think about past and future in English. Well, there are all sorts of contrasts that languages deal with. And one of them is this business of control. But the thing is, from language to language, you can see that this business of control is subtle and it differs from group to group and often for no real reason. You've got the same kind of randomness that you get in terms of how gender assignment works in lots of European languages. So, for example, what's controlled in Maori? Well, spouses, you can kind of understand that, things that you carry, movable objects, and food is something you control, and pets. Okay, hopefully you can control them. But then in the uncontrolled class, like this grandparent class, you've got places, which apparently you don't control, 
outdoor spaces that are enclosed. Now you would think that you were controlling that because you can close the door, but no, those are uncontrolled. Animals that you use to transport things are in the uncontrolled class, but it seems that all you do to those poor beasts is control them, but they are uncontrolled like grandparents. Medicine is not controlled. See, it doesn't quite make sense. Really, to a large extent, you just have to know what's your toku and what's your taku. That's a fun thing about oceanic languages. So it's just a matter of grammar. Just like you have to know that in Spanish, the word for hand is mano, but for God knows what reason, it's feminine. And so it's la mano and not el mano. You have to know that in Maori, you don't control your medicine. That is the way these oceanic languages work. Now, Maori is one of a subgroup of oceanic, which is the Polynesian languages. And I'm going to single them out partly just because of my random personal experience these days, which is that I'm I'm reading a marvelous book that I'm going to recommend. It's called Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. It's by Christina Thompson. And you can't put it down. It's like Pringles potato chips. And everybody says, oh, no, it leaves an oil slick on my tongue. Aren't they a little ghetto? Yes, they are. And put out Pringles at a party and notice they will be the first thing gone. Put out your Tostitos and your pita bread and your hummus and the Pringles and watch the Pringles be the first thing to go. It's because they're fabulous. As is Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia by Christina Thompson. It's not really about languages. It's just about the settlement of Polynesia. And this thing is like Citizen Kane. She really tells the story. The space that Polynesian languages occupy is enormous. The Pacific Ocean is really big. A lot of these islands and languages are as far apart as planets. And yet human beings, and not too very long ago, this took some doing, have managed to settle these islands and atolls and little specks of stone. It's absolutely amazing the journeying, just imagining people journeying on, such as in the musical Ragtime. This was a very different kind of journey, but it's this kind of music that I think of when I imagine Polynesia being settled. A salute to the man on the deck of that ship. A salute to the immigrant stranger. Heaven knows why you'd make such a terrible trip. May your own God protect you from danger. Is it freedom or love that you pray for in your guttural accent? Too late, long gone. A salute to a fellow who hasn't a chance. Journey The Polynesian languages, the Polynesian languages of the oceanic subgroup of Malayo-Polynesian, which is one subfamily of Austronesian. The Polynesian languages are the world's newest languages. And so all of this starts from Samoa and or Tonga, which are westerly, in about 1200 BC, according to modern estimates. And you know, there's a great deal of controversy. It seems to change every five minutes, but I'm giving you what I learned roughly last summer. Samoa and Tonga, about 1200 BC. And then by about 100 AD, these people have gotten way far to the east to Tahiti and the society islands. These are the world's newest languages. Many of them, depending on how you count it, aren't even 2,000 years old. And you have a very interesting story with the Norwegian 
I don't know what he called himself, anthropologist, adventurer, self-publicist, Thor Heyerdahl. In 1947, he decides to prove that the Polynesians couldn't have come from the West, but they must have come from South America. He had this very interesting idea that some South American people left the coast, the West Coast of South America, and settled Polynesia. And the reason he thought so was largely because of wind. Because the fact is that I'm talking about people starting in, say, Tonga or Samoa, and then going eastward. But the thing is, they would have faced in their little or even their big canoes, a wind blowing very strongly always in the other direction. It would have been very hard to do that. And so Thor Heyerdahl had this idea that they must have come from South America. And he, you know, there's some people in South America who talk about how some quote unquote white people went away, although I'm not sure how white Polynesians are. And there are various, you know, parallels that he tried to make. Very interesting. In 1947, he actually made the journey on a little boat, and his idea was to show that this is something that people could have done. But the problem is there are so many other indications, the linguistic indications, the archaeological indications. It's clear that Polynesians came from the other direction. And it's been discovered that between 1140 And 1260, the wind changed direction in that area. And within that window, it allows the settlement of a great many of the other islands. It explains how these people could have gotten all the way over to Easter Island, for example, or all the way up to Hawaii. And the dates match so beautifully that Thor Heyerdahl, very exciting person, you know, Kontiki is what he called the boat. Interesting phenomenon. It's fun reading about him. But poor Thor was wrong. The Polynesian languages, because they are so new, are very much alike. So, for example, we're all aware of Hawaii, and we know that if you read it out, it's Hawaii, Hawaii, with that glottal stop. Now, what's interesting is that in the Maori legends, their homeland is a place called Hawaii. So, Hawaii, Hawaii. Now, I said that we're talking about sounds called stops. P, t, k, go further back, and it's uh. So, Hawaii is another way of saying Hawaii. Or in the Cook Islands, that same homeland in the same legends is called Avaiki. Avaiki. So you don't have the huh. The huh is just an uh, but it's the same word. In Samoa, that huh is a s. And so for them, the homeland is Savai'i. So all of those are variations on the word Hawaii, just little changes from place to place. That homeland is not the same thing as the islands of Hawaii for reasons that we don't need to go into, but the word is the same. And in these Polynesian languages, a neat thing is that often they have many fewer sounds than we assume a language is going to have. And so on the one hand, they're very picky about possession. But for example, the Hawaiian language has A, E, I, O, and U. So you've got A, E, E, O, U. Then for the consonants, you've got p, t, you've got m, n, you've got h, l, w, and u. And that's it. P, t, m, n, h, l, w, u. That's all they have for consonants. And so they make an awful lot out of what we think of as counterintuitively few sounds. And as such, the words often are longer. Because if you have that few sounds, then to keep words different, you have to make them longer. So the humu humu nuku nuku apua, that fish that often 
you hear a lot about, or at least I did when I was a kid, I think because of something in the World Book Encyclopedia. But the humumunukudukuapua, that long kind of word, it's because there just aren't that many sounds, as opposed to, for example, languages where there are frankly just too many sounds, like the click languages. One of the click languages, depending on how you count it, has 148 consonants, including dozens of the clicks. And in a language like that, the words tend to be on the short side, you know, two syllables, maybe three. And that's because basically with that many consonants and vowels, you know, there are good three dozen vowels in that language. You really don't need your words to be very long to be quite different from one another. Genes and language are being correlated ever more closely these days. The research is coming in so fast I can barely keep up with it. But there's one other story about Polynesia, which is that apparently Polynesia was settled first by people who started in Taiwan, then jumped down to the Philippines and then started trotting across eastward. But then there was a second group that came from the islands right to the west, and that was Melanesian people. And they came in and invaded, possibly, or just settled and annoyed people who had already come from Taiwan. And what you can see from the genes is that these Melanesians were men. A bunch of Melanesian men came in and biologically transformed the original Polynesian people. Now, you know what happens when a bunch of men come somewhere and start annoying people and marrying people? They butcher the language. This has happened countless times worldwide. The language that I'm speaking right now is the result of Scandinavian Vikings coming to England and tearing Old English to pieces. I am right now speaking really shitty Old English. That sort of thing happened in Polynesia. And as a result, it didn't make anything shitty. But Polynesian languages grammatically, despite wrinkles like this business with possession, are not as grammatically nasty as languages like Russian and Georgian and languages of Sudan. And one of the reasons is probably that those Melanesians came over and made the languages a little more user-friendly because they weren't speaking them right. And so they got rid of a lot of the things that make languages really, really hard. Nobody knows this for sure, but it's a distinct possibility, especially because otherwise what Polynesian languages are like, including this business with the vowels, is relatively mysterious. In any case, all this happened by boat. And here is a duet about boats. Coney Island boat from By the Beautiful Sea of 1953. As a matter of fact, Mae Barnes was in this show. And if you want to hear her sing more and you want something that's readily available online, find her singing Happy Habit in By the Beautiful Sea, a wonderful cut. But this is Shirley Booth and Chorus doing Coney Island Boat. I love this duet. Oh, 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 oh,
Before I go, something we haven't done for a while, a little bit of backshift, because you guys are always sending me examples of this. It's absolutely delightful. So, for example, the Walkman, which I mentioned on this show, we all remember them. You didn't want to take it to the beach because if any sand got into it, it just ruined it. That's what I associate Walkmans with. But Walkman, so it's Walkman, right? Well, wouldn't you expect if when things become things that the accent shifts like that, wouldn't you expect that at least for about 10 minutes it would have been called a Walkman, a Walkman? Well, it was. And here's how we know, because Nick B. sent me a 1980 Walkman commercial where it's a Walkman. Listen to this. With the Sony Walkman. The Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound. Put on a Walkman and see the world in a whole new light. Sony Walkman. The Walkman from Sony, the one and only. So that's almost as good as that time that I played you somebody on NPR talking about a website really early on in like 1917. And actually, here is one more. I just sat through a really terrible movie, Barefoot in the Park, with Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. People loved it at the time. Boy, that thing is so dated. It's like mucus on a paper plate. I'm mystified that people loved it so much. But I did get one thing out of watching Barefoot in the Park, and that is that somebody, when they're talking about an ugly dental procedure, says... He's telling her about some great Japanese restaurant in East Berlin, and she's describing the joys of having a root canal job. Isn't that great? A root canal. Now we say a root canal. So that's what I got out of one hour and 45 minutes of barefoot in the fucking park. In any case, that's a little bit more backshift. And that's Austronesian. I can't give you every family, as I said. But Austronesian is one in six or seven languages on earth. That's like a good heaping serving of peach jello. Or like if you eat a can of black olives all by yourself in the closet because you don't want people to see you. Or it's like lamb shoulders, not chops, but shoulders undersung, steeped in a very special marinade and broiled for five minutes on each side. That is Austronesian. You know, there's another branch of Austronesian that's been discovered, and it's a tasty story. This is one of the neatest discoveries about language of the past 10 years, if you ask me, but you can only learn about it if you subscribe to Slate Plus. With Slate Plus, you get little extras. You don't have to listen to any ads, and for a nominal fee, you get to have no ads and little extra bits, not only with Lexicon Valley, but with all the other podcasts that Slate provides for all of us. And it doesn't only help my show, but also the others. So subscribe to Slate Plus. And in this case, there's this lost part of Austronesian, quite unlike anything that I've talked about on this show. It's wonderful and counterintuitive, but I'm so sorry to do this to you. You can only hear about it if you have Slate Plus. Billie Holiday is coming back. And you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go home and I'm going to finish Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia by Christina Thompson. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter. Sea People. <laughs>